Hey, Chrissy here. Welcome to The Uncertain Hour. This is the final episode of our special pop-up emergency podcast season, A History of Now, where we try to make sense of this moment. The pandemic, the economic fallout, skyrocketing unemployment, protests against police brutality and for Black lives. This moment when the inequalities that already existed in our society are suddenly set in high relief. And we've heard from so many of you over the past six weeks with your questions about how some of this has been playing out. Thank you for your emails and your tweets, for your big questions, and your questions about the little details. Because, of course, as we talk about a lot on this show, the big, heady stuff comes from all that little nitty-gritty stuff. The fine print. So we want to take some time this week to answer your questions about the price of chicken, about health care benefits, and more. And our show producers are going to help me with that, starting with senior producer Caitlin Esch. Hey, Caitlin. Hey, Chrissy. We got a lot of questions about the chicken industry after the episode that you reported about essential workers who lack essential job protections and good wages. And that episode had listeners thinking a lot about where their chicken comes from and how much they're willing to pay for it. So let's start with those questions. This one comes from Suresh in Santa Cruz, California. Has anybody done the calculations? What would be the cost of chicken if fair wages and decent health care is given to all the essential workers in this field? Then the question becomes, are people willing to pay the increased cost? Thank you. That is a great question and one that I did not know the answer to. So I made a couple of phone calls and here's what I found out. So to start, we need to define what fair wages might be. And one of the people I talked to is a guy named Minor Sinclair. And I'm the director of Oxfam's domestic program here in the United States. Oxfam has been monitoring the poultry industry for years now. Uh, They've been advocating for better working conditions and better pay. And Minor uses MIT's living wage calculator. A living wage covers the basics like food and housing and childcare, health expenses, that kind of thing. And so in Mississippi, where you've been talking to poultry workers, what would a living wage be there? Two working parents with two kids would each need to make about $13 an hour to earn a living wage. And a lot of poultry workers do make that. They earn on average between $12 and $14 an hour. But they usually don't get paid sick leave, and they may not get other benefits like health insurance either. And, of course, a lot of families have more than four people, and a lot of families don't have two wage earners. So how do we we cut through that? Yeah, I'm thinking of a family that I met. They had three children. The father was detained in an ice raid and was incarcerated, and the mother was working at a chicken plant. And she would have needed to make $28 an hour to support her family, which, of course, she was not earning. Wow. And right. So it's it's hard to figure out what we'd need to pay for chicken at the store to make sure that every chicken plant worker has enough money to live on. Yeah. So we could come up with a kind of proxy to answer Suresh's question. Let's imagine one adult worker supporting one child. That parent would need to earn about $20 an hour to earn a living wage. So you'd need to raise wages by about 50%, and then you'd want to consider benefits, too, like sick pay. So you'd want to raise wages by about 50%, and what would that do to prices at the register? 
I ran this question by a guy who specializes in animal supply chains. His name is Mark Jordan, and he's the executive director of Leap Market Analytics in Arkansas. He says, take a product like boneless, skinless chicken breasts. A common price point, depending on the market, is $1.99 a pound. Of that $1.99 a pound, how much of that reflects plant labor, like the people who kill, clean, and cut our chicken? Here's what he estimates. You're talking 10 to maybe on the high end, 15 cents a pound. 10 to 15 cents per pound. So if you wanted to bump up wages for those plant workers by 50% and add better benefits, you'd be paying more like $2.09 a pound instead of the $1.99 you're used to. And what would that amount to for a chicken-eating family of four? Well, that would add about $30, $35 to the grocery budget just on chicken in a year. $35 a year. That's not a whole lot. Yeah, and this is a back-of-the-envelope estimate, so prices would vary by product. Some chicken products are highly processed and require more labor. Take a chicken McNugget from McDonald's, for example. Oxfam actually did this for a report. Here's Miner again. Within a chicken McNugget, only about half of the weight of a chicken McNugget is meat. The rest of it is other product. So if you weigh only the actual meat, about two cents out of every dollar that you spend on a McNugget reflects the cost of labor in the plants. So that's the people that hang, cut, and process the chicken. So if consumers were willing to pay 1% to 2% more for McNuggets, you could, in theory, raise wages for those plant workers. And so just doing the math, that it's like five to 10 cents more for like a $5 order of chicken McNuggets, which is not huge. Yes, but as Mark points out, nothing happens in a vacuum. It's a good thought exercise to walk through some of these numbers. But yeah, when you say, all right, well, let's change this one thing, you know, this much. And it's hard to see a change of that kind of magnitude in one labor component and assume no change anywhere else. If you raise wages for plant workers, you might have to raise wages for chicken catchers and truck drivers and workers all across the supply chain. One question that I've been wondering is whether there's been any pressure to raise wages because of the outbreaks and the shutdowns and people not wanting to go back into those chicken plants for fear of getting sick. There has. Some companies have responded by offering temporary hazard pay based on attendance. Sometimes it's a dollar or two extra per hour. Sometimes it's a flat payment of like $300 to $500 per month. It makes a lot of sense to pay workers a little bit more during a pandemic. But the problem is it also creates an incentive to keep going to work even if you don't feel well. Huh. Right. I guess unless you have sick pay, in which case you'd still get paid even if you don't go to work. But on a related note, I have noticed over the past few months that prices for things like chicken are going up in the grocery store. And I assume that's not because of rising wages, but why are prices jumping around so much? Demand has changed over the course of the pandemic as people eat at home instead of at restaurants and cafeterias. And there have also been disruptions in the supply chain as workers get sick and plants shut down temporarily. There's a supply shock. And Miner says it's ironic because prices for some products rose higher because of supply chain disruptions than they would have if workers were getting better pay and sick days in the first place. And he says that might have prevented some of the outbreaks. If we had been willing, we consumers paying and, and companies paying their workers, willing to treat workers better on the front end, so they had sick pay, so they had a living wage, so they weren't so vulnerable and pressured to come into work, 
we may not have had the kind of contagions and plant closings and COVID-19 hotspots that we're having today and the escalating prices we're having today. That's a really interesting point, that sick pay can help workers, of course, but it also has positive spillover effects for the rest of the economy. And connected to that, here is this related question from another listener. This is from Marvin via Twitter. He says, all firms are entitled to make a profit. How much of the price we pay at the register is labor costs and how much is profit? Realizing that there are numerous firms between the rancher and the consumer. Yeah. So we just talked about labor costs. About 10 to 15 cents per pound of chicken reflects the workers who cut and process the meat. In terms of profit, market analyst Mark Jordan estimates that for a pound of chicken, it's safe to say about 5 to 10 cents per pound is profit for the chicken company. But there's a lot of variation. There's times where you know profit margins are 15, 20 cents a pound. There's times where the chicken industry has lost money. Oxfam's Minor Sinclair frames it in a different perspective. He compares CEO pay to worker pay. And if you look at just the CEO pay, you know, CEO will make about $5,000 an hour. So a CEO makes more in one day than a uh, line speed worker would make for the entire year. That's incredible. That is incredible. Though what's also incredible is that it's actually not all that unusual for a corporation with a lot of low-wage workers to have that kind of disparity. The CEO of McDonald's makes more in one day than a McDonald's server would make in three years. But I digress. So one last question about chickens. Here is a message from another listener. Hi, this is David Markley in Bellevue, Washington. And I've been thinking about those workers at the meat processing plants where there have been outbreaks of the coronavirus and wondering if they get the virus, are they covered under the workers' compensation program for their medical costs and lost wages? Or do they have to be using their employer's medical plan and sick leave benefits? The poultry workers that I've been talking to usually don't have paid sick leave, and they may not have health insurance either. Some companies are giving workers temporary paid sick leave during the pandemic if they test positive for COVID or they need to quarantine. Other companies are not, or they're having workers file for short-term disability, which doesn't cover 100% of your wages like sick time does. So workers who are barely getting by financially might still come to work sick. But yeah, workers would go through whatever sick time they have access to, and they would use their health benefits if they have those. And then there's the question of workers' comp. Would they qualify? Maybe. It's a little bit complicated. And just to define our terms, so workers' compensation is a kind of social benefit insurance program that almost all employers are required to pay into that protects workers who get sick or injured on the job. Right. It's a state program, so different states have different rules for who qualifies. Emily Spieler is a law professor at Northeastern University. Before that, she used to run the workers' compensation program in West Virginia. And she says in order to get the benefit, a worker has to prove their disease was caused by work or caught at work. And in the case of COVID-19, that could be difficult to do. And many states have an exclusion for what they call ordinary diseases of life. That is, diseases that exist in the general community outside of work. And what that means is interpreted differently in different states. 
ordinary diseases of life. I love that phrase. But she's talking about like the flu or a cold. Exactly. And COVID-19 could eventually become an ordinary disease of life. But for now, Emily says most workers with repeated exposure to the virus, like healthcare workers or emergency responders, they should qualify for workers' compensation. That means healthcare relating to your illness or injury is covered and about two-thirds of your wage, though there is a cap. Some states have changed their laws to make it easier for essential workers to get workers' comp temporarily during the pandemic. Then we turn to workers like the workers in the meatpacking industry where there were significant clusters. In most states, I think that those workers would be eligible for workers' compensation. Usually employers want that kind of eligibility because it would shield them from other kinds of tort liability. And just to translate an employer being shielded from other kinds of tort liability means essentially an injured employee who gets workers' comp can't sue that employer for money, right? Right. Emily says workers' comp is sometimes referred to as the grand bargain because in exchange for the benefit, companies get immunity from some lawsuits. But there are workers who are suing some companies for failing to protect them from COVID, right? I'm thinking of a lawsuit against a big meatpacking plant, Smithfield, that was later dismissed. And then there's one that's moving forward against McDonald's. Yes. And those are public nuisance lawsuits. Workers are suing for a safer workplace, not for damages. So workers are asking the courts Mm. to force companies to follow safety guidelines that would otherwise be voluntary. And on the other hand, some companies are making employees sign liability waivers, but it's not clear those will hold up. And this conversation quickly gets us into the question of corporate liability, which is a big sticking point right now in Congress. I know lawmakers are considering the next phase of the COVID relief package, and this is one of the big issues they've been talking about. Republicans are pushing for so-called liability shields. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said on Fox News that this is a red line. We have a red line on liability. It won't pass the Senate without it. He wants to protect employers from lawsuits when workers inevitably get sick with COVID on the job. And you've heard that the trial lawyers all over the country are sharpening their pencils, getting ready to sue you, claiming that you didn't engage in proper distancing or other issues related to health and safety. What they've been talking about and what the Chamber of Commerce has been talking about is pretty sweeping and unprecedented. Hugh Barron is an attorney at the National Employment Law Project. He says there's no bill yet to scrutinize, but he's concerned about the potential long-term consequences of what Republicans and lobbying groups like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce are trying to pass. The corporate lobbyists who are fighting for it aren't just pushing for immunity for getting workers sick. They're also pushing for immunity from a range of other core worker protections, including violations of workers' minimum wage rights during the pandemic, their rights to overtime, the right to not work off the clock, protections against disability discrimination, their right to paid sick days, and other core rights. And so it's really, um, it's a sweeping proposal that's being made to put corporations above the law. Which could have consequences that go far beyond COVID. Exactly.
So as our economy reopens, people are going to continue to get sick, and some people will get sick because of workplace exposure. And hopefully they'll have health insurance. And that brings us to the last listener question that we're going to answer today from a listener named Joanne. She wrote in to say, how and when did health care become tied to employment? Our producer, Peter Balanon-Rosen, looked into this question. Hey, Peter. Hey, Chrissy. So Joanne's question is a good one, especially today with health on all of our minds. And the origins of health insurance through the workplace, it really starts back in the 1920s. Okay, what happened then? Medicine was having a moment. All of a sudden, we had penicillin, childbirth at hospitals, and all these new ways to reduce infections. For the first time, healthcare was actually kind of dope. I spoke to Sherry Gleed, a health economist at NYU, about this, and she says people just paid for hospital services like any other service until the Great Depression happened. Now there are no people who can pay to use those hospitals because everybody's lost all their money in the Depression, right? So the hospitals get together and they create this thing called Blue Cross, um, which is going to be a way of prepaying your future hospital expenses. You pay a premium every month, and if you need the hospital, they pay for it for you. Um, And they start to sell it. Initially, they sell it to groups of school teachers through the workplace. And why sell it through the workplace? So Blue Cross did try to sell plans to individuals, but the only people who'd buy it were already sick and likely to use it, which was bad business for Blue Cross. But if they offered cheaper group plans and sold insurance through workplaces— Blue Cross could get people who were both healthy and unhealthy to buy in. And in 1929, the first health insurance plan in the country popped up. Blue Cross allowed Texas teachers to contribute 50 cents a month to a fund that would guarantee them up to 21 days of hospital care. It was deducted right from their paycheck. Now, I should mention, Blue Cross was just for hospital services. At the same time, doctors created an insurance plan for people to visit physicians called Blue Shield. So this is where Blue Cross Blue Shield comes from. Indeed. Ha ha, I never knew that. So this first set of health insurance comes out, and were a lot of people covered by it? Honestly, no. Like under 10% of Americans. Until we get to World War II, when two big things happen. First off, there's the war. So many people were fighting overseas that there's a labor shortage at home. Economists were nervous that businesses would just keep raising wages to compete for the few workers who were left, and that would drive up inflation. So the government actually froze wages. They told businesses they couldn't raise pay to attract workers. But they didn't make any rules about benefits. Here's Sherry again. So you're told that you can only pay uh, Rosie the Riveter $10 an hour, right? And there are not you have a lot of jobs and not many Rosies to hire. So you say, okay, Rosie, you can get $10 an hour and we'll give you health insurance. So that's a more attractive job. It's a shiny kind of extra goodie that they're, they're adding on. Exactly. It's the free set of steak knives. Okay. <laughs> and this other big thing happened. The IRS decided they wouldn't tax employer-based health insurance, which made it cheaper for people to get insurance that way than buying it themselves. So in the 1940s, companies suddenly start offering untaxed health insurance to get more workers. And by the 1950s, unions started bargaining for better packages like dental and vision. And these plans become the cornerstone of our health system. 
And just to show you how rapidly this spread, in 1940, about 9% of Americans had any health insurance. By 1960, more than two-thirds did, wow. most of which came from employers. Wow. I'm thinking, though, through this time in other countries, they went a different direction. They just went with universal health care funded through the government. Mm-hmm. So were there discussions in these early days among policymakers in the U.S. to go that route? Actually, yeah. President Truman proposed that in the 1940s and got intense pushback from doctors groups and hospitals who wanted to maintain control over prices and were wary about government involvement. We heard those same arguments when President Johnson proposed Medicare and Medicaid in the 1960s. We heard them again in the 2000s with Obamacare. And we're hearing them again today when people are talking about Medicare for all. So this is an ongoing tug of war. Totally, totally. Now, an interesting thing, according to the Kaiser Foundation, about half of Americans, 49 percent, get insurance through an employer, a third get insurance through a government program like Medicare or Medicaid, and about 6% buy it themselves. Hmm. Now, that's during normal times. But with the pandemic, Kaiser estimates nearly 27 million people, about one in six people who had employer-sponsored health insurance, may have lost it because they lost their job. Wow. So no job and no health insurance. A double whammy. Sherry also points out that a lot of people who lost jobs didn't have employer-sponsored health insurance in the first place. But the people who retained their jobs are often people with health insurance, with employer-sponsored health insurance. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Like, the disparity between the haves and have-nots has, if anything, gotten bigger. Which has kind of been the theme of our whole pop-up season. And that brings me to one last thing I want to tell you about, Chrissy. I have an update about one of the people we met this season. Uh, Do you remember Candace, the woman from Georgia who's having trouble getting unemployment benefits? Of course I remember Candace, the would-be sex toy entrepreneur. That's the one. Well, I shot her a message on Twitter the other day just to see how things were going. And turns out after months of trying to get through to the Georgia Department of Labor to figure out where her money was, she finally got some answers. And she learned that even though she thought she was approved for benefits, they told her she didn't have enough of an earnings history to actually qualify. Because remember, she, yeah, she just started at Denny's a few weeks before the pandemic hit, and she hadn't been working for a few months before that. And we've talked about that in our episode, that there are lots of people who don't meet the minimum earnings requirements to qualify for unemployment benefits. But right now, isn't there this expanded pandemic unemployment insurance that would cover people like Candace? Yeah, and Candace is applying for that. It's called Pandemic Unemployment Assistance. It's $600 weekly from the federal government for people who don't qualify for unemployment insurance because they don't have enough earnings history or they're self-employed. She's hoping to get two months of back payments through that. In the meantime, she's been driving Lyft to make ends meet, and she's back at work at Denny's, which just reopened. So Candace is back at work And what do we know at this point about how the pandemic will affect unemployment in general? Well, in their first economic projections this year, the Federal Reserve indicated they expect the unemployment rate to end 2020 at 9.3 percent. 
That's almost one in 10 people who want a job without one. And they expect that unemployment rate to remain elevated for some time, still up to about 5.5% two years from now, which is higher than what you'd want in a healthy economy. Now, of course, we know this won't play out evenly. Like back in May, black unemployment rose to almost 17%. Asian unemployment rose to 15%, while white unemployment actually fell from 14% to 12%. Wow, that's some inequality right there. Yeah, so the holes in our social safety nets and inequalities in society that have been so exacerbated by this pandemic, well, they're not going away anytime soon. Right. Though, one thing that I have been struck by in our research for this season is that if you look back through history, there are two moments that really jump out that mark the beginnings of these rare eras when economic inequality started to fall dramatically. One of them was in Italy, and it starts in the 1300s, soon after the plague. And then there's another huge fall in parts of Western Europe that begins in 1918, right after the flu pandemic, and continues for decades. And of course, history is messy and lots of other things were going on, feudal skirmishes, peasant revolts, world wars. But there is this pattern. If you look at graphs of data in these places, tracking the share of wealth held by the richest 10%, it starts to plummet after each of those two pandemics. Workers' wages rose and concentrated wealth fell. So far, the coronavirus and its fallout have been so unequally felt. Black people are more likely to die from the virus. Black and Hispanic workers were more likely to be part of the low-wage essential workforce that was on the front lines risking exposure to the coronavirus while the rest of the country stayed at home. And Black and Hispanic workers have been hit far harder by the coronavirus recession so far. But at the same time, we're seeing these massive, unprecedented protests right now, sparked by the death of George Floyd at the hands of police and fueled by so many deep frustrations about the structural racism and inequality built into the foundation of how our country works, its basic policies. People are demanding change. And it makes me wonder what kind of moment this will be when historians look back at us someday. That's it for this episode and this season of The Uncertain Hour. Thanks so much for listening. I should say we have three previous seasons I highly recommend if you haven't already heard them. People have told us about problems downloading those episodes in the last few weeks, but the bugs are now all fixed. So check them out. They're really worth your time. And never fear, we will be back later this year with a whole new season. Till then, take care of yourselves. Our show is made by an amazing team. It's produced by Caitlin Esch, Chris Julin, and Peter Balanon-Rosen. Our editor is Catherine Winter. Our engineer is Daniel Ramirez. Our intern is Daniel Martinez. 
Our digital team is Tony Wagner and Erica Phillips. Our theme music is by Wonderly. Satara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand at Marketplace. Deborah Clark is the senior vice president and general manager. And I'm your host and Marketplace senior correspondent, Chrissy Clark. Bye.